we welcome you to the REST podcast. The messages you will hear have been taken from sessions from past REST conferences. We pray that God will use this message to encourage and strengthen you in your walk with the Lord and your ministry for Him. We're, we're going to look at we're going to look at Psalm 142 for just a minute. I want to encourage the pastors' hearts. Psalm 142, and uh, when you look at this, <laughs> when you look at this, you'll see that the title of this psalm it says "Maskell of David," and then it says it was a prayer when he was where when he was in the cave. This is a prayer when he was in the cave. Let's look at this prayer. He said, I I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him before, uh, showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, they have privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Now, David, David had two cave experiences, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're preachers, so we know this. What was, what was the big cave experience in David's life? Was the cave of uh, Adullam. Then there was the cave of Engedi. When you compare the two cave experiences, you realize that this doesn't fit in Gedi when David met Saul in the cave and cut off a piece of his skirt. But this is a, a prayer when David was in the cave of Adullam. Now, he was in the cave of Adullam after he had killed Goliath. And the people had sung the great songs. You know, David is slain, Saul slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And David then uh, begins to serve there with, with Saul. And uh, then the trouble begins, right? And David finds himself running for his life, and he's in Adullam. In fact, let's look back for just a moment at 1 Samuel. Run back to 1 Samuel 22. And we're going to get a glimpse of David in this cave. And uh, I think this might encourage our hearts this morning. <laughs> because I think some of us, we can identify right with David here. First Samuel 22. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. Now you'd think they're coming down there to help him, right? But verse 2 says, And everyone that was in distress... And everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over him. Now, what a team. What a team to be the captain of, right? This is the first Baptist church of Adullam. (laughs) Everyone that's stressed out, everyone that's in debt, and everybody that's discontent, they all came to your church. And they came there when you were distressed and you were in debt and you were discontent and you were in a cave, right? And they said, we're going to make you captain over us, so tell us what to do. (laughs) And that is, guys, that is, in a lot of ways, the life of the pastor. We're dealing with our own things. And ever so often, we get into a cave. And uh, 
when we get in that cave, we don't know exactly what to do. It's dark. We don't know where to go. These are dark days. And we don't know what our next steps are. I'm going to share this very quickly because I don't have much time, but I, I just believe this will encourage you. My dad was born uh, Charles Dean Brzezinski. He was Polish. He was born in 1939 in Benton, Illinois. When my dad was two, he was the youngest of three kids. When my dad was two, 1941, my grandfather Brzezinski walked in the house one night, looked at my grandmother Estelita, and he said, I'm getting my stuff, and I'm getting in the car with her, and I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. He was a drunk, and he left my, my grandmother and my father. When my dad was two. My dad, of course, has no recollection of that. Grandpa Brzezinski left. My, my grandmother uh, took the three kids and she moved to Chicago looking for work. 1942, when my dad was three years old, Leo Miller came back from the war and he was in Chicago and he met my grandmother and fell in love with her, married her and adopted those three kids and moved them to Muscle Shell, Montana. You say, where's that? I have no idea. Uh, it's not on the map, but it's over there somewhere around Roundup and Billings. But out in the middle of Montana, my dad was now being raised by Leo Miller, who was a big old tall, scrapping rancher and, and, and farmer. And he was a tough, tough man. He'd come back from the war, he was, but he was, a, he was a drunk himself. And uh, so dad grew up not knowing anything about the Brzezinski past. All dad knew was ranching and raising horses, breaking horses. And dad began to uh, break horses when he was just a boy and began to uh, build his own stock and then began to ride rodeos. And uh, dad was up and moving through the rodeo ranks in Montana and uh, bucking with a bunch of guys, the Linderman group out of Montana. They were world champions at the time and dad was riding a lot with them. And uh, he moved to uh, Red Lodge, Montana when, uh, when dad, was, when dad was 18, and uh, he walked into a little cafe called Natalie's Cafe, and he saw a little blonde-haired waitress in there that was 16. It was my mom. Her name was Ragbag Johnson. Her mom was the town drunk. Her mom, my mom never knew her dad. Uh, she was the youngest of four girls, and... Uh, the sisters, when they got old enough to get out of the house, they got out of the house. My mom, when she was little, she'd have to go down to the Wagon Wheel Saloon and find her mom and help her get home in a blizzard. And She said many times she'd be in the bedroom and there'd be men in the house and she'd hear the screaming and fighting and hitting and get up in the morning, blood on the wall. And Her mom's sitting there with black eyes in the morning smoking a cigarette. And mom would go to school and there was a little bakery at the end of the corner there and she would take bread that was sitting out on a cooling rack in the morning. She'd take a loaf of bread, steal that bread to eat. And her nickname was Ragbag Johnson. Mom was working at Natalie's Cafe, and here comes this scrapping Montana cowboy who looked like a lot like Elvis Presley in those days. And uh, my dad walked in, and they met each other. And so at 18 and 16, they got married. And... Uh, Dad got a job at the Chevrolet garage as a grease monkey and began to just work, and they began to raise a little family. They had three kids. When Dad was 25, my mom was expecting their fourth baby, 
and dad was drinking heavily and just rough. And uh, my mom came down one night to the Wagon Wheel Saloon where she had drugged my mom or her mom out of that place many times, met my dad, and my dad was out there in front of that saloon drunk and uh, covered with his own vomit. My mom said, you make me sick. And she, the next day, filed for divorce. She moved in with one of her sisters, and uh, mom and dad are going through that divorce. While dad was going through that difficult time, there was a guy by the name of Bill Wickham. Bill Wickham had been sent to Montana from Denver to start a Baptist church, and he was working at the Chevrolet garage. He had witnessed to my dad. My dad would tear the track up in his face and throw it back in his face and cuss him. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm a Catholic, and he wasn't any more of a Catholic than uh, anything. But dad said, I'm a Catholic. I'll, I'll die Catholic. I want nothing to do with this. My mom had that baby while they were separated, and he was born with a hole in his heart. He lived for a month and a half, and then he died. And my mom and dad, broken, young, lost, um, no money. The funeral home said, we'll give you this little casket, little styrofoam casket, but you'll have to bury him. And so dad went out there and with my mom, and dad dug that little grave, and uh, they buried a son. And uh, dad left that cemetery and went to drink. Mom went back to her sister's house with the other kids and this little broken couple. The next day, Bill Wickham walked into that Chevrolet garage with a tear in his eye. And he said, Dean, I prayed for you. Can't imagine what you're going through. I wish, wish you'd read this. Dad took it, threw it over on the counter. Dad was now parts, he was in the parts department. Threw that thing over on the counter and went about his business. And later at lunch, he sat down to type out some orders, and he saw that little track there. What must I do to be saved by Dr. John Rice? Dad picked that thing up, began to read it, and God began to do something in his heart. And he thought, I better go ask that guy some questions, but I don't want him to know that I'm interested. <laughs> so he went out and began to ask Bill Wickham some questions. And Bill said, I'll tell you what, Dean, why don't I just give you a ride home after work? Dad said, okay. So he took my dad home, and they're sitting in the driveway of that little house there on Humboldt Street, and my dad is sitting in that passenger seat. Bill Wickham's got the Bible out showing him how to get saved. Lo and behold, my mom comes up the street. She's coming home to get a couple things out of the house. My dad said, there's my wife. Now, Bill Wickham's never met my, my mom. He jumped out of the car, and the Holy Spirit had him say the right thing to my mom. He looked at her and he said, Jerry, you don't know me. I work with your husband. And he said, uh, I was just telling your husband how that you could see your baby again one day. Would you like to know that? <laughs> she said, more than anything. And so he took them both in the house. And for the first time in months, mom and dad joined hands together Amen. over the old Bible and trusted Christ Amen. as Savior. Amen. But Wiccan began to work with them and help them and teach them the Word of God, and they started getting some things right. Well, then my dad got the dream job, but he had to, trans he had to transfer to Billings, Montana. 
they're brand new Christians and they're moving to Billings. Well, Bill Wickham called a pastor by the name of Ron Stores, and he called him and said, hey, Ron, Ron was starting the church over in Billings. He said, I got a young couple moving over that way. Now, listen, you better make sure they get in church. They're young. They got a lot of problems, and you need to make sure they get in church. So my mom and dad get to Billings, and they're unloading their little trailer, um, and they're getting some stuff in their apartment, and here comes this big old tall scrapping preacher, and he comes around that corner, howdy, folks, and uh, tells my dad, he said, hey, we're having church tomorrow. I'll be by to get you guys. I know you're moving in right now, but I'll get you guys tomorrow morning at 9.15. I'll be by to pick you up. See you tomorrow. And he walks away. Never gives him a chance to say no. My mom looks at my dad and she said, how do they find us? <laughs> they went to that church. He was starting the church in a little two-car garage in his house. And they went in that church and began to grow Brother Ron Storrs began to preach the gospel to mom and dad and teach them and train them and help them. And they'd been in that church for about two years when on a Sunday night, dad surrendered to preach. Amen. Mom and dad moved from Billings to Denver, Colorado to go to Bible college. They'd never been in a town with more than 50,000 people. <laughs> they come rolling over that hilltop and they saw the lights of that city two o'clock in the morning at Denver, a million people then in that city. And my mom just reached over, grabbed my dad's hand, and said, are you sure? <laughs> well, they had a blowout. They pulled off the interstate there, and they got up to a little gas station. And uh, on, the, on the window, it was, of course, closed, but it had an emergency number you could call. Dad went to the payphone, called this emergency number. A guy rolled up there, 2 o'clock in the morning, jumped out of the car, and uh, he was the owner of that service station, and he saw they had a flat tire, and he began to ask them what's going on. They said, we're just moving here. And he said, well, where, where are you staying? And he said, well, we don't have any place to stay. You know, we're just coming to town by faith. And, and uh, the guy was a, a Christian. He, he went to, uh, he attended South Sheridan Baptist Church under Dr. Ed Nelson there. So he told my dad, he said, listen, why don't you, uh, I got a little duplex right up the road here. We'll get your tire changed. We'll get you up there. He said, I just had some people move out. He said, if you guys will move in and you'll paint the place, we'll just call that your down payment. And, uh, and that'll be your first month's rent. So mom and dad moved in this little duplex there. And, and uh, he said, we want you to come to church with us uh, on, tomorrow on Sunday. Well, the next day was Sunday. And uh, mom and dad are going to go to church. Now, Ron Storrs, before they left Billings, had told them, don't you attend a Southern Baptist church. When you get to Denver, you find you a good independent Baptist church. Don't you go to a Southern Baptist church. So this guy had invited them to go to South Sheridan Baptist Church. And that was the name of the road, but my dad didn't know any better. He's just green, you know. So he told my mom, he said, now look, we'll go to this Southern Baptist Church one time. It's South Sheridan Baptist Church. We'll go one time. We won't tell anybody. Well, they got to the church. They walked in, and they were talking to some folks. And, and uh, how'd you hear about our church? And they told, you know, somewhere in that process, my dad had mentioned that Bill Wickham had led us to Christ. And they said, Bill Wickham? Well, Bill Wickham was sent from that church to Montana. And so dad got, to, uh, got into that church. And, man, I, I could tell you so many stories. But dad moved in. He worked there for about seven years. In 1976, dad moved to Colorado Springs to start a church there by faith, just our family. And I was two. Began to, that church began to grow leaps and bounds. It just began to grow in those early days. And we had all kinds of trouble. We'd found later that there was a big Satan church in, in Manitou Springs, and they were doing all kinds of stuff. They would 
shoot up our, they'd shot up our house a couple of times and set our house on fire once or twice. And, and uh, I, I didn't know anybody. I just thought that everybody, you know, I thought everybody had a life like this, you know? And <laughs> my, mom and, my mom and I were driving down the road one day in the old Buick, mom's driving. I was just a little kid in the back seat. And I say, hey, mom, look, somebody lost a tire. And this tire is bouncing down the road, right? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it was our tire. It loosened the lug nuts on that thing and it came off. And we had things like that happen all the time. Well, well, Dad had led a man to Christ by the name of Roy Pring. He was a multimillionaire. The church had been praying for some property. We just kept outgrowing the buildings we were in, and we were looking for some property to build a building, and the men had been having all-night prayer meetings, and a man in the church had told my dad, you need to go talk to Roy Pring. And uh, uh, Dad went to, Dad, Dad never did go by and see him, and then one day a man came in and said, Preacher, you look at this paper here, and the headline was, Roy Pring injured in a train car cr uh, crash. A train had hit his car, and he was in the ICU, and Dad thought, you know, I've been meaning to go by and talk to this guy, but probably more the, about his soul than to buy some land. And so he went by the hospital and went in the ICU and talked to Roy Pring and led him to Christ. And uh, through the process of just w walking, that, uh, walking him through these time of recovery, Dad got to know him and fellowship with him, and the church got together and prayed, and Dad was going up to the hospital one day to just talk to him after he'd been in there for about two or three weeks, and Dad was going to go up there and talk to him and say, look, we want to, when you get better, we want to buy some land, and I want you to be thinking about that. We're just going to start that conversation. And Dad got up to the hospital, and Roy Pring was gone. And, uh, and so uh, Dad said, well, the Holy Spirit said, well, you know where he lives. And so he went to his house and uh, knocked on the door, and big, beautiful mansion, and I won't go through all the detail of that, but Dad met with Roy Pring that day, and I said, we're looking to get some land. He said, well, where are you looking? He said, well, we kind of like to be up on this side of, of the city. The city's kind of growing this way. We'd like to be up on this side of the town. He said, go get your wife, come back this afternoon, and we'll talk. My mom and dad came back to the house, and Roy Pring said, I want you to, you and your wife take a walk up the trail behind me on top of the hill, and I'll be up there in a little bit. And he come rolling up in his Lincoln Continental up a little cow path and still kind of bandaged up. He got out, and he said, so what do you think? And they're standing up on this big hill. You can see Pikes Peak and all the city. And he said, what do you think? And man, Dad said, boy, this is beautiful up here. He goes, no, 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 what do you think about this property? He said, this property up here? He said, yeah, what do you think about this property? You think you can build a church up here? It was the highest point in the city of Colorado Springs, 360-degree view. I mean, just spectacular. He said, my wife and I have been talking about it. This is our prized piece of property. We'd like to give it to the church. And so the next Sunday, Roy Pring walked the aisle, made a public profession of faith, and signed the title deed to 20 acres of land, $3.5 million at that time, and gave it to the, to the church. And uh, as the Lord saw fit, we built a building up there. We had just gotten the building complete. We were waiting on our permits to get in, uh, the finalization of occupancy and all that. And, but all of our belongings were in there. We had moved everything in. And um, Dad got a phone call on Thursday night, or Thursday morning, rather, that uh, uh, he needed to come to the church. We went up there. Dad and I, I was just a little boy, and we drove up there. I was about eight. We drove up to the church, and I just remember walking through this building that had been so beautiful, brand new, everything, and there was just trash and dust, and it was chaos. And somebody had come in that building and vandalized that building, 
and I'm talking 300 and some thousand dollars worth of damage. I mean, they destroyed everything. They they chopped the piano in half with a with a with a uh, with an axe. They busted the pulpit down. They've been in every classroom, busted all the ceiling tiles out, put all kinds of wicked things all over the walls, and went in my dad's office, took all his books off the shelf, and destroyed everything in there. And uh, just, I mean, just destroyed that. There was a big, we had a Lord's Supper table with a Bible on it, and they'd opened that Bible up to Psalm 73 there, where, and they'd circled the verse, they, the, the heathen have been in the congregation of the Lord, and um, just destroyed that church. I, I remember just walking around, boy, the police were up there, and everybody was up just making reports and saying, don't touch anything, they're looking for fingerprints, and that building was absolutely destroyed. I just remember as a little boy walking through that place, and I started looking for my dad, and I couldn't find him. And uh, I walked out the back door, and there was a little pad of concrete. It was an unfinished area of the property, and just a little pad of concrete. I walked out that back door, and when I opened it up, I saw my mom. She was leaning over, and she had her hands on my dad's shoulders. And here's my dad, this big old tough. Dad, dad, never, dad never showed any kind of pain Dad never showed any kind of trouble. He was just always, Dad was just strong. And I saw Dad sitting on that concrete pad with his face in his hands. And I heard my mom saying, come on, let's, let's go. And my, I never will forget this, the shock that went through my body. I mean, it was like an electrical shock. All the security of my little life left in one moment when I heard my dad say, I'm done. I'm done. And my mom said, well, let's, let's go. Dad got up, and I knew we were in trouble because when they got to the car, mom drove. Mom never drove. <laughs> I remember just watching them drive away, and I looked at my brother, and I said, Dad's dying. Dad, I really thought my dad was going to die. Later on that day, we got home, and I walked in the house, and Dad was on the couch. He never laid on the couch. Dad's laid on the couch face in the pillow, just laid on the couch all day long. We, uh, we got a phone call later in that day, and they said, Wait, hey, we need preacher to come to the church. And my dad said, to, hey, Dean, they need us at the church. And my dad said, I'm not going back there. I'm done. My mom said, they, they need us up there. We had a police officer in our church, and he told my mom, he said, tell them that the police want him up at the church. So they said, the police need you up there. So he got up, went out, sat in the passenger seat of the car. My mom drove. We all drove up to the church together. My dad just sitting there. <laughs> we get up to the church, and as we pull into the parking lot, parking lot's full of cars. As we get out of the car, a bunch of our church people are there. Several hundred of them are there, and they have standing in the front door of the church, lining the hallway into the auditorium. As we get out of the car, the church is singing, living by faith in Jesus above. Amen. Nothing. I just remember walking through that, that gauntlet of church members, and they're just tears and singing and praising the Lord, and they'd been up there all day just cleaning, getting things back together. They couldn't patch the walls, but they got it all cleaned up. We walked in that auditorium, and they had taken my dad's pulpit that had been chopped up, and they'd gotten it kind of back up. Oh, where it could stand, and they had one of my dad's Bibles they salvaged out of his office. They had it up there, and dad had a little sign that he had wood burned when he was in college, 
and he had it over his door. I never really paid much attention to it, but they'd taken that little sign that Dad had Woodburned years ago, and it had two big hammer marks in it. It was all that they had on it, but it had survived it. But Dad had Woodburned a little sign that said, Discouragement is of the devil. And they had that sitting up on his pulpit. And the people got in there and said, Preach, preacher, preach to us, preach to us. I just never forget just dad holding that sign in his hand. That Sunday morning, the newspapers were all there. The headline of the paper the next morning was, uh, Devil Enters Church. With a picture of my dad with a Bible in one hand and that sign, Discouragement of the Devil, is of the devil in the other hand. And dad preached that Sunday morning to a packed house. And God did great things. I want to tell you this real quick and and want to back up and just throw something back in when dad was in Bible college. My dad was in college and it was kind of a discouraging time for mom and dad. They were going through a real difficult time right towards the end of his his college year. I think Brother Brother Dustman, dad had been in Walden for a little while up in that mountain town building, starting that church up there in Walden. And they had just come back down and were starting to work for Ed Nelson and just a real difficult time for them. But a knock on the door. My mom went to the door and man said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for Dean Miller. My wife said, well, that's my husband. And he said, well, I'm looking for a Dean Miller whose mom is Estelita. And uh, uh, he's from Montana. My mom said, well, that's my husband. And the guy's, man, and just tears in his eyes and said, okay, we've been looking for him. She said, well, he's not here. And he said, I'll be back later. He came back that evening when my dad was there and He came in and he said, Dean, you don't know me, but he said, I'm your uncle. My name is Butch Brzezinski. And he said, we've been looking for you for all these years. And my dad said, I don't have an uncle, Butch Brzezinski. (laughs) He said, yeah, you do, and you're looking at him. And he sat down and began to tell my dad the story that my dad had a real dad that had left the family and he had been adopted and dad didn't know any of that. And he said, we, we've been looking for you. And he said, your real dad wants to meet you if you'd like to meet him. He gave my dad a roll of money and said, want your family to come out to Illinois for family reunion next month, Thanksgiving. And dad called his mom and his, his, his dad, Leo Miller, and called them and I talked to him. They said, yeah, it's true. You need to go out and meet him. I think he'd be good for you. Dad packed up all of us kids. I was a baby. I don't remember it, but Dad packed all the kids up, went out to Benton, Illinois, walked into the house, all these Brzezinski's around, and Dad met his real dad, Raymond Brzezinski. Raymond just grabbed a hold of my dad and said, I'm so sorry. He said, I'm saved, and uh, this is my wife, and these are some of your half-brothers and sisters here. And dad had a little reunion with them and said, I want you to forgive me. And dad said, I I have nothing to forgive you about. I don't even know you. And uh, he said, I want you to meet somebody. And so my my grandpa, Brzezinski, took my dad, got him in the car, and they drove over to a little farmhouse out in the country there in Benton and went up in the upstairs in a little loft. There were two little beds up there, two little old 90-year-old people in it, a little man and woman laying up there in their late 90s. And that was my dad's grandparents, my great-grandparents, Brzezinski's. They had immigrated from Poland in 1912, uh, come from Poland to the United States. And he was a coal miner, 
And uh, while he was mining coal back in the 19-teens, a big revival came through, one of those big tabernacle revivals they built up there, and the evangelist preached for about six weeks or seven weeks. And in that time, my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather got saved. And they had 12 children. My grandfather was the oldest of their kids, and he had become uh, the black sheep of the family and gotten away from God and divorced his wife and lost his kids. But my great-granddaddy, Brzezinski, God had called him to preach after he got saved. He was a Baptist preacher. And my great-granddaddy, my great-grandmother, never stopped praying for those little grandkids. They didn't know where they were. They had prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them. When they walked in that little room, my grandfather, Ray Brzezinski, said, Grandma and Grandpa, I want you to meet somebody. And uh, little old Grandpa raised up on that elbow and said, I know who that is. That's Deanie. We've prayed for you all these years. Dad was, dad was now in his 30s, and they had been praying. And here, Dad was saved. He's a Baptist preacher. And uh, got to meet his family with all kinds of Baptist preachers in the Brzezinski. We got a bunch of Pollock Baptists up there in Illinois. <laughs> I just remember Dad that night when he's with that church. And uh, he had been at the lowest point he'd ever been in in his life. But he'd seen God come through many times before. He knew that God could do it again, and he was in his cave. He was in a cave, time of discouragement, time of darkness. And, um, and God had shown himself real over and over again. And I tell you what, when we, when we came out of that time in our ministry, God began to do some mighty things. God began to do great and mighty things that we knew not. And I look back at those days, and I thank God that Dad didn't die in the cave. Yes, sir. Now, can I, can I give you some things this morning very quickly? We've got about five minutes. I want you just to jot some practical things down. David's, David gives us really here, guys, a cure for our cave. In Psalm 142, David says, first of all, in verse number 1, David says, I, I hear, he said, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. Watch this. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. Now, how many of you knew that God already knew that David was in trouble? But when you get in that cave sometimes, you just got to have somebody to tell. And guys, sometimes it's not our deacons and it's not our men and we can't just get up in the pulpit and take it out on everybody else. The pastor's got to learn something. Here's what David learned. Here's what David learned. David learned, first of all, God hears prayer. Amen. Now, listen, we've already heard about this this morning, and we heard about it last night, and, and this is going to be repetition, but I think we preachers sometimes are hard-headed, aren't we? Yeah. We're the leaders, and we, we got to always have an answer. But I want to tell you guys, I'm telling you right now, I don't know about you, but in my life, Satan fights my prayer life. Satan fights my prayer life. You know, God moved our family from Mississippi to Colorado this year, and it was unexpected. We, we were in a thriving church. I mean, the Spirit of God was in that place. And I didn't want to leave there, and God 
stirred our nest. And Brother Polly knows a lot about this. We spent a lot of time on the phone, and he was such a, a, a help to me and a counselor and just a friend, and we prayed together. But I want to tell you what God did in my life is God moved me to show me a couple things. Number one, God showed me in that that I had begun to take ownership of what belonged to God. I had started finding identity in my church instead of in Christ. And I realized that for years, I was using my devotion time for sermon preparation times. My prayer time was praying for my preaching and not just praying for my soul and praying for my needs and to enter into intimate relationship with the Lord. I tell you what happened. Uh, I had to go back in these last seven months and God has transformed my prayer life. This may sound simple and I know many of us have heard it before, but I want to tell you, I, I went back and got a fresh look at what Jesus said to his disciples when they said, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, when you pray, I want you to say, my Father, Amen. our Father, yes. our Father. And remember, Jesus was teaching personal prayer, but he was using plural pronouns. If you go back and look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5 and 6, when you enter into your closet, your Father would see at the end secret, right? So he's talking about personal, private prayer, but he's using plural pronouns. And I, I got to thinking about that. God began to teach me something about prayer there that when I pray, I'm never praying. I've never gone to the Lord in personal, private prayer. I've always gone with a prayer partner. The Lord Jesus prays with me. And the Holy Spirit prays with me. And when I'm going, I'm going to the Lord with our Father. I'm coming with Jesus. And we're going to him and saying to him, our Father. And not only did I pray with partnership, but I've learned to pray these last seven months with relationship, Father, Father. Hey, I don't know about you guys, but let me tell you, this is what the devil had done for, to me for years. I would go into my prayer closet and I would beseech God as though sometimes he were far off. And, and I don't know about you, I'm just, just giving a personal testimony here. But I would get in that prayer closet and I would begin to go to God and say, now God, you know how I've been using my gifts but I'm carnal and I need help. And I'd begin to confess my sins and go before the Lord with my lack of, with my lack of spiritual and, and my, my, my sins. And I would begin to almost be making a barter with God. It was, prayer had really become manipulation is what it was. God, if you'll overlook these things and just give me your power, I really need your help. And here's, here's what was happening. My prayer life was actually more of a time of defeat than victory. I was more defeated oftentimes after I'd been in prayer. Until I began to go in with partnership with Jesus and in relationship with the Father. You know, if, when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't tell us to bring our sins first. He, he, we dealt with sin, but he said, don't bring your sin first. You come with partnership. You walk in with the Lord Jesus Christ. You walk into your Father. Amen. You remind yourself that you're a child of God. And then he said, then pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What is that? That's worship. Yes, 
I began to pray with worship when I would come into his presence. Father, I'm a child of yours, and I want you to know I know who you are. You are Jehovah. You are the great I am. You're the almighty. You're the omnipotent. You're the omniscient. You're the creator. You're the anchor. You are the rock. You are the mighty God. You are the fortress. You're the buckler. And just begin to worship God and hallow his name. Begin to pray the names of God. You want to know somebody, uh, you start talking. When God gives us names of himself in the Bible, he's just giving us glimpses of who he is. And as I begin to, I say, God, I want your name hallowed in me. Just worship. And then he said, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let me tell you what I found. I needed to surrender. Lord, thy kingdom come. Jesus had told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. We're not in the kingdom age, we're in the church age. We belong to the church. I'll tell you where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is in you. And if Christ is not on the throne of your heart, you're not walking in the kingdom of God. The kingdom come, thy will be done. I had to learn to walk into God's presence with worship and with surrender. And then he flips the script. If you'll notice the pronouns in that, it's it's thy will be done, thy name, thy kingdom. And then he flips it to give us give us. You know, so many times I, run into, I was running into prayer talking about me. God said, I want you to come into presence and talk about me. We'll get to you later, but listen, he said, you're coming in here with all your problems, and you're just throwing a grocery list at me so you can run back out and take care of all the things you need to take care of. Why don't you come in here and look at me? If you come in here and look at me, you'll start looking at your problems a lot less. I tell you what, man, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And just worship and then surrender and then begin to make my petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he says, forgive us. Forgive us. And that's where you get into confession. I tell you what, my confession began to take a greater a a greater place in my prayer life when I had God in his place. I had me in my place. That confession became, I'll tell you what I found out, that I needed to do not just get forgiveness, I needed to be giving a lot of forgiveness in prayer. And I forgive that member who didn't mean to say what they said. Lord, I forgive that deacon who, right? Forgive us as we forgive. And then I prayed with, protection. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. That's where you begin to pray for protection. God, protect me today. You know, so many times I was walking out of the house totally unprotected, not, not, listen, 1 Peter 5 was written to the pastor. Casting your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil. As a roaring lion, I, I want to tell you something. I, I really believe the devil's after the pastor more than he is after the people. Smite the shepherd and you can scatter the flock, right? And we as pastors got to be aware of, of, our, of our adversary. And then, boy, to finish up in worship, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. But God hears prayer. I'm out of time. But let, me, let, me give you, let me give you just things you can just jot down. David said when he was in that cave, (laughs) the Lord hears prayer. And then he said in verse number three, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. 
God knew my path. God knows your path. Listen, hey, aren't you glad that God knows right where you are? When you're in the cave, God knows exactly which cave it is. <laughs> he knows your path. And then Job said, he knoweth the path that I take. And when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. And then he said, I looked on, verse 4, I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cares for my soul. He knows our pain. Jesus knows what it is to be forsaken and for no one to know. I mean, David's in this cave. There's 400 men in there with him, and nobody's caring for David. They're distressed. They're in debt. They're discouraged. They're saying, what are you going to do for us? You know, I mean, there's, how many times have you gone to the pulpit or you've been called on, hey, preach, I'm having some trouble with my marriage, and you're thinking, you know, mine's not so hot right now. Huh? Hey, one of my kids is uh, rebellious, and you're thinking, boy, you know, I've got some trouble at home. Huh? You ever been there? But no one's ever stopped mine just saying, hey, how are things with you? <laughs> but the Lord knows about that. He knows our pain. And then he said, he said in verse number five, I cried to the Lord, thou art my refuge and my portion. Hey, listen, David said, not only does he hear prayer, not only does he know my path, not only does he know my pain, but the Lord's my portion. In other words, what David said is, God, he is all I need. Hey, you know, many times we've got up in church, we've sung, Christ is all I need. But I think the question that we really need to ask is, is he all we want? <laughs> is he really all you want? Is he really, is he everything? If everything else was taken out of your life but the Lord Jesus, would you have enough? Yes, he is our portion. And then David said in verse number seven, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The Lord will be praised. Let me tell you what you need to remember in your cave, that the Lord's gonna be praised in this. The Lord's gonna be praised. And by the way, you ever, you ever dawn on you that most of God's men had to spend some time in a cave? I mean, Joseph had the pit, Joseph had the prison, right? Elijah was in his cave. The Lord said, Lord, what, what doest thou here, right? And, and then you find uh, Paul over there at Lystra. He was under that pile of stones. <laughs> that was his little makeshift cave there, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know, but I met somebody in that cave. I came up out of it, and I went back in that city and preached. Paul was in that little cave called a prison uh, several times, was he not? Uh, I think Jesus had a cave experience called a sepulcher, it just seems that God does his greatest work in a cave, doesn't he? God took Joseph and made him a king in a cave. God took Paul and took him from Paul, made Paul from Saul the murderer to Paul the missionary in a cave. Jesus came out of that cave with redemption's plan finished. God knows how to work in a cave. It's interesting that David said, I know that God's going to be praised one of these days. He said, because I'm going to be encompassed with the righteous. He said, I'm going to be encompassed with the righteous. And it's interesting that these same 400 men that were the distressed and in debt and discontent became David's mighty men. In this cave, they didn't care for his soul, but a little while later, they would battle everybody to go get him a drink of water from Bethlehem. Some of those people that right now, they're in our church thinking, what in the world? How am I in it? I mean, look at, they are in a mess all these hours of counseling, but one of these days, that guy's gonna be, God's gonna do something with that man. God knows where you are, and he knows how to help you where you are. Thank you for listening. We hope that the Lord has used this message to speak to you. The REST Conference is a meeting designed to encourage and strengthen pastors, missionaries, evangelists, and their wives, along with other Christian workers serving the Lord in their local churches. REST 2020 is scheduled for September 7th through 9th at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. 
We hope that you and your spouse will make plans to join us. For more information about REST, go to our website, therestconference.com.